Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Practical CMO, a monthly podcast on marketing growth and business strategy issues primarily, but always trying to pick up the themes from a very practical standpoint so that hopefully there'll be something in this show that you can take back to your business and apply directly. So today's show is titled Four Best Practices for Ensuring Success from Startup to Scale-Up. And I picked up this theme because in my experience working with small businesses, and when you look at all the data that's out there historically, the truth is most small business startups fail. And the numbers are both compelling and pretty ugly. Only 10% of all business startups actually reach 1 million in revenue, and fewer than 1% get to 10 million. So the question is, what if you could beat those odds by employing four tested business practices? In this program, we're going to take a very positive track and outline a set of proactive actions that every business exec contemplating starting a business or actively building a new business can adopt to beat the odds and achieve your goals. That's our focus today. I have a great guest to join me, an expert in startups and scaling businesses. Brett Trainer owns a business, a startup business called iQuip. It's a new business venture. And Brett's got a ton of background experience related to small business startups and helping businesses grow. Brett, tell us a little bit about iQuip and some of the things you're into. And then I want to ask you, how did you get to the point of focusing just on this particular theme? I mean, you've got a new article coming out. The link will be in the introduction to this podcast, but tell us a little bit about your background and then why is this issue the one that really captured your attention and focus? Yeah, absolutely. And hi, Mark. It's, it's great to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so it's a, a thrill to be able to, to chat with you. And yeah, you know, I, I like to think of my background as seasoned <laughs> and experienced, but, but the truth is it's almost 30, it is now 30 years, mostly all in the B2B space and almost exclusively in, in go-to-market areas. I bounce back and forth between startup and enterprise. So it's, it, it's given me kind of a unique perspective. And I guess my one claim to fame that maybe differentiates me from others is I worked for the same SVP of sales, chief revenue officer, different title at four different companies. And why that was beneficial to me is he basically hired me into whatever position was available. So my day job was to run, you know, different functions. So in one company was a large customer success org. I've run sales ops. I've run a sales team. And I've also run demand generation. So unlike a lot of the folks that come up either in marketing or sales or service, I've run teams on, in all areas. And what helped me make the transition to back into the startup world for good and start my own company was, you know, I got tired of screaming at the mountaintop for these large B2B companies saying, hey, digital transformations is coming. Silos don't work. Customer experience is important. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, but I need to hit my operating budget. So mm, I made yeah. the decision, maybe I can go help, right? Build the right platform and infrastructure for companies to succeed in what we call the, you know, more of a modern growth opportunity. So yeah, yeah. You know, that word modern is, is really an interesting one. When people talk about use the, the word like uh, the language modern technologies, there's something about the word modern that makes me shudder a little bit, right? <laughs> but I don't know what if there's a better word than modern. 
but I know what you're saying, right? And uh, I've also had a similar experience, you know, working in large companies where you know what could really improve the business, but you can't break down enough silos. You can't get enough interaction, collaboration to do some really truly transformative things, right? And um, like you, I think the small business mid-market in particular are very amenable to either starting with a different, at a different point or pivoting so that they can use technology more effectively. And they're, they're big beneficiaries of technology to help them scale. So we'll get into that a little bit more. What did you see though in the startup world? I mean, the data is, it's pretty compelling. It's pretty consistent. I remember um, looking at the SBA data probably 20, 30 years ago. I don't think the success rates on new business startups were any better or worse necessarily than they are today, but the number's pretty ugly. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And again, I'm more of a half full than half empty. So I like to focus on, man, there's there's opportunity. And, and you touched on kind of the two big ones that drove me to kind of start the company, which is how do we get more of these businesses, especially B2B to that 10 million growth mark? I mean, that just opens up, we could probably do a whole episode on why that's important, but let's just <laughs> agree that the 10 million is where you're trying to get there. And when I broke down the data, right, it's the, the 10% to a million and the less than 1% get to 10. And I couldn't figure out why, what was, it, what was it about that 1 million that was so, it seemed arbitrary and, you know, working with clients and then through the interviews on podcasts of founders that had broken through that 10 million, what I found was the biggest barrier to get from one to 10 was selling and growing outside of the founder's network. So the longer the founder had been in business, the bigger the network, you know, they, they obviously built a good product that they could sell it into, you know, folks that they know or friends of friends. But once they reached that threshold, either yeah. they figured out how to sell to new prospects and new markets, or they didn't. And I think the stat kind of reflects the vast majority of, of folks can't figure it out, right? And either run out of money, they get burned out, and they become part of that statistic. Yeah. And what about founders? I mean, a lot of businesses, um, new businesses are started by people with technology backgrounds or engineering backgrounds. I mean, do they even have the right network, personal professional network relative to the kinds of um, companies and buyers they might actually need for their offering? I think in the early days, yes, because what I found is a lot of those founders sell on passion right? <laughs> Their excitement for the product. I know how this works. You can sell it. But then once you have to translate into others or the organization being able to sell it, that's where those type of founders struggle because nobody else is going to have that same enthusiasm as the founder in mm. order to deliver it. And, you know, that's kind of what you indicated the part, kind of that four-part plan is to, you know, there's a methodology to help prioritize. It's just not, I think one of the biggest mistakes I see the founders make is, well, I've got to this point, I'm going to go hire you know, a couple sales reps, right? And that'll help me grow the business. And yeah, maybe the right answer, but nine maybe. times out of 10, I'm saying that's probably not your, the first step that you should be taking. Yeah. Well, and then what about the sort of the double tasking implied in trying to found a business and trying to grow a business at the same time, right? Yeah. I mean, there's that old, uh, old sort of line. It's like, you know, you can't, you can't, um, you really can't do both because, you're working on the business, you can't be working in the business as much, right? I mean, so when you're you're trying to launch a business, you know, a business of founders often have wearing multiple hats, but trying to be 
the salesperson, the marketing person, the product person, as well as the founder slash CEO can be, can be just too much. Yeah, I think it's a balance, right? Maybe art and science. And I think that's probably the number two challenge that most of the founders, they take too long to get out of the day to day, right? They think I have to do it this way. I know all the process if they even actually have a process and be able to make to transition out. Because if in order to get to that 10, there's no way that you can be involved in every step of that day to day of the business, because it's just going to be too much of a bottleneck. You know, mm -hmm. I kind of coined a phrase that I use is, you know, kind of the founder's capacity, right? Whether it's selling, whether it's operational or time, if the founder cannot get out of that way or reaches their capacity, that's usually where the business stalls. Yeah. And you have to figure out a way to delegate and, and get the right people and systems into your organization to help, you know, kind of break through that. Yeah. And, you know, the people, of course, you know, we'd say, well, nothing good happens without the right people in place, right? And I mean, I, I mean, when you, when you think about some of the roles that you had, and I think back on some of my roles, you know, as some days it felt like I was spending 80 or 90% of my time on people related opportunities and issues because good plans don't survive bad people, but good people can improve a bad plan, right? And and I think it's, it really ultimately is mostly about people. But do you, th do you think founders recognize good people? Are they looking for people that, that look like them, act like them? Do they understand the value of um, hiring people with different competencies and different personalities, you know, like a different disc profile, for example? To answer the Broadly, no, they don't do a very good job of, of that type of a, an approach. And I do think, you know, that is the biggest opportunity because especially in a small business, if you make the wrong hire, especially at a more senior level type of position, somebody you want to head up sales or marketing, or in some cases, customer success, if you get that wrong, that's like a nine or 12 or even longer month mistake, right? From the opportunity costs, what you spent on it. And a lot of these small businesses just, just don't have it. So I believe it's an underappreciated part. I'd rather start with, give me the good people that believe in the mission and the vision of what I have for this company. And then we can train, you know, the folks to do certain functions. And yeah. even in the, the, I'm sorry, Mark, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, no, I was agreeing with you because I know some entrepreneurs that were very reluctant to turn their product or service sale over to somebody somebody else, right? Because they thought, well, only I'm the only one who really knows what this is and how to sell it, right? But that, you know, that's not very scalable. Obviously, that's, you know, that becomes a restriction on being able to grow your business. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And even when I think back to my corporate days, some of my best hires were the ones that may not have had the full experience in the position we were hiring him into. But the personality was there, the drive was there, it was just a good fit from a person standpoint and you knew they had the, the capabilities to learn it. Mm -hmm. And I just think with, you know, what we're doing with the, the, you know, the digital transformation, you know, I heard your recent podcast episode with um, Beth, I mean, I think it, it's changing. And so if you hire somebody for a very specific skill set, that may be changed in six to 12 months that the way we're going. So I've always yeah. led with the person first and make sure that they're aligned with, you know, kind of your vision. But the one caveat I would say, you don't, you don't need a bunch of yes people either because you want somebody that can provide feedback and mm -hmm. opinion, but yet still is fighting towards the, the same goal. Right. You know, I've got one more question and then we're going to take a short break and I want to jump into the 
ACEs best practices that you've laid out, the ACES best practices. My question uh, before a break, Brett, is basically just this. You just made a comment that was really a risk-related comment. It was about sort of, you know, spending your money, doing, you know, getting everything you can, kind of launch the business, you know, perhaps you spend all the cash that you've accumulated through angel investors or friends, family, maybe even an early round. And then you go to market and then you find out what the market really was. And, but now you say, oh, gee, if I only had, you know, X, Y, and Z in this product, um, that's what people are asking for. But you don't have, you've just blown your whole capital availability and anything that you can invest to sort of make that next iteration in the product. How often do you see that happening? Yeah, I mean, I think all the time, right? Especially the earlier the stage of the company, or even if they've got some good momentum. And I just had a conversation with with a founder this week where we talked about, you know, customer insights, which ties directly back into kind of what you're asking. And very often when we're doing the market analysis or selling the first customers, you sell the customers. But again, if you're selling into your network, you're probably going to be a more agreeable buyer, even if it's not exactly what they're looking for. And the one nugget I would throw out that a lot of people don't spend time for, even in the early days, is if you churn customers, do kind of an analysis of why. Why did they leave you, right? Because it was all tied to a win-back program. But I think some of the gold was there is, you know, what were they not getting that they thought they were going to get? Or why did mm-hmm. they leave? And that can really help you kind of tie that insight back to where your product is going. But to your point, if you go everything and you only get 60% of it right, you're going to be in trouble trying to scramble back to, to figure out. So long-winded answer to your question is if, if there's a way to balance it, right? The longer you can bootstrap, the better, but not always the case. Yeah. I, I mean, when I work with um, startups, I say, hey, look, you, you know, if you're first, if you release 1.0 of whatever your product or service is, is 60 or 70% of what the market really wants, that's a good target to aim for. Because a lot of times, you know, when you go ask people what they want, they really can't articulate it. But then when they have something to actually look at and evaluate, then they can say, oh yeah, well now I, under- now I understand what you're, what you're trying to get to here. And, you know, but you missed a couple of things, right? And so that sort of iteration and pacing and managing your cash, I think is pretty important early on. Yeah. And the one, the one thing I would add to that is, you know, I came kind of an epiphany a few years ago that it really is around the problem that you're solving for the customer instead of features and benefits. And if I had a dime for every time I talked to a founder and said, well, our features, our benefits are better than companies. I'm like, if you center around the problem that you're solving for the customer, you're going to have less maybe variation of, you know, there's different ways to solve it. But you know what I'm saying? If you lead with features and benefits and then you have to educate on why you need features and benefits, there's a much greater risk that you're going to have to pivot. But if you start with the problem and evolve from how you're solving that problem, you're going to be closer, I think, earlier mm-hmm. than if you would have, have taken another approach. So I know it sounds super yeah. simple, but it works. No, it does work. I mean, we talk about in Chief Outsiders, we talk about pain points, right? And, you know, pain points aren't necessarily, that's not a sort of necessarily a pleasant, pleasant <laughs> couple of words, right? But it's like, what are your goals and challenges? You know, what are the things that, that are holding you back from being the business that you want to be, right? Yes. And, um, and what, what kind of are the missing 
support services you, you need to help get there. So I think that's all part of sort of building a good entrepreneurial ecosystem, right? And trying to understand, but also focusing directly on, you know, because kind of it is simple, but it's it's simple, but it's also takes work to understand what are pain points, right? What is the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, and, and, and quite honestly, how do you do it differently than your competition, right? Well, Just... that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that makes, makes a difference too. <laughs> but, but you know, it's unique and I love your perspective because I think a lot of the time when I work with these founders, you know, the biggest competition is do nothing. And that's a really hard, because when, when they can compare themselves to another company, they can say, well, this is how we're different features, benefits, blah, blah, blah. But when the company is either not going to go with the solution, just keep riding it out. That's a much more difficult conversation for a lot of the founders in these startups is to yeah. address the do nothing portion of it. Right. But understanding what your competitors, uh, who they are and what they offer, but doing nothing about it. I think it's still better than pretending you don't have any competitors, right? 100%, yeah. You know, because you get a lot of entrepreneurs like, well, no, nobody else does this. And really, it's like, you're the only one in the world that's thought of this. Like, you know, I'm not so sure you convinced me, right? Right. But just trying to create an awareness that it's just not about you trying to convert prospects into customers. There just may be other people out there trying to do the same thing. And, you know, sometimes that's an awareness that's lacking as well. No, I completely agree with that. Yeah. We really want to dig into ACEs. And Brett, you've got an article that we've referenced in the um, introduction to today's show. And I want, I want to just dig into each of these, each of the, the different best practices in your framework. And um, let's just take them one at a time here and just kind of lay them out. I know I think what I really appreciate from you is you're not looking at why things fail. You're looking at the, sort of the half full how can we help you succeed, which I think is really a, a great positive message. So A's alignment, that's all I really know about your framework. <laughs> and I'm going to let you take it from there. Yeah. And to me, the again, I think the four parts kind of work in sequence, but can be built independently. And you may be stronger in some areas than others. But if I'm working with the startup, you know, alignment is one of those, if you don't get this right, don't go past go because you're just going to create friction and spend a lot of money and waste a lot of money. So when I look at alignment, it's really around the three things, which is, you know, the offering of the company. So what is the product or service you have to your target market and the problem you're trying to solve for that target market, right? So is it truly aligned with what they're trying to accomplish? And the larger you get, the more disconnected this can be. Mm -hmm. But the area of the alignment that most companies don't factor in is kind of the, the why of the company. Why is the company doing this? Why are we trying to solve this problem? And if there's a disconnect between those three, your messaging and positioning is gonna be off, right? Because you and I can articulate what the problem we solve, how we do it, but then you look at the website and it has a completely different message and you lose trust with the customers. And the why aspect of the company is something that I've come kind of done a 180 on the last couple of years, because I was always kind of under the belief that, hey, man, if we got a really good solution, we're solving a problem and we execute well, we're going to grow. But what I'm finding is the why the founder started the company for a reason or the business owner started that something was important to them, whether it's you know, solving world hunger, or it could be mm -hmm. something super simple that we just want to make these 10 companies better at what they do. And the more you can tie that into those, those three and into your offering, you know, I think the biggest benefit of that is if you can't convince your employees or future employees 
to get behind the product, it's going to be really hard for them to convince the customer that this is right. a product to solve it for them. So, yeah. you know, this is, so it, I know I talk about alignment. It's really about your messaging and positioning. And we kind of touched on it before the break that said, Hey, what's the problem we solve? How do we solve it? How do we solve it differently than our competition? And do we have some proof points around it? Making sure that the entire story is tied together. Again, on the, on, on the surface, this sounds really easy. But I've spent two days in workshops working with companies just to make sure that we could get everybody aligned around mm -hmm. this, this position. Yeah. And, you know, alignment may be one of the most misused words in business, right? Gosh, I don't, I don't know how many different contexts I've heard the word used. Yes. Um, I think one of my first introductions was a strategic alignment of business and technology, right? Getting technology aligned with your business strategy. I just went through this with... Um, business last week, honestly, we're trying to look at their manufacturer, a very successful manufacturer. But the question are, uh, on the table was what are new technology should they be paying attention to that will help them serve as customers and will help them internally operate with an, an, an increased um, operational efficiency. And, and this whole notion of alignment in that context was like, oh, we didn't, never really thought about it that way. I, lo I love your definition of alignment here related to startups and getting them to scale because you really can't afford to have on a small company like every resource every dollar needs to be supporting the same mission the same goal right yes. and you can't you can't afford to sort of have you know 10 people in your business and two of them sort of be on a different track it doesn't work for a startup no and i think the one part maybe just to, to dig in just a little bit more and we kind of touched on the customer is who's your target market right who are you really going after and i've always the cliche riches are in the niches and i truly believe that with the early startups you know pick one area your product may solve a host of problems in a bunch of different areas pick one and get really good at it which comes back to that the product and customer alignment that it's just not hey it's messaging for you and I to have this conversation. It's really, and then looking at how big that market is and then expand. Yeah. But I think yeah. too often everybody wants to boil the ocean instead of just, you know, get really good. And then you can, you can branch out. That's hard for yeah. some folk to, to get their head around. Well, I mean, I've read a lot of entrepreneurs business plans where, you know, they thought this is sort of the next solution to world hunger, right? That anybody can use it, everybody can use it. And, that, and we know that, you know, that's not positioning that doesn't work, right? If it's for everybody, then nobody will probably relate to it in the way that you're really looking for them to as a prospective customer. So you've got the next in the ACEs model is C, connect. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. You mean, give us a little definition of how you're using that in the framework you've developed, Brett. Yeah. So when I look at the kind of the next connect, enable, support, right, this is really now getting into the kind of the customer journey, right? And if you look at a lot of different maps and frameworks, and I know you guys do a good job with it, it was, you know, six to nine steps a lot of the times. And it just had founders head spin when you say you've got these nine steps. So what I tried to do is just break it down into more manageable pieces and the bigger buckets. And so connect again, ties back to the inability of most startups to reach new prospects. So how are we going to reach the prospects in your universe? And I'm not sure if we talked about this earlier, if this was maybe just offline for a second, but at any given point, only 3% of your target buying audience is in active buy now mode. So yeah, that will surprise you, people. That fact would yeah. really 
surprise people, right? And then the question is, you know, do you wait till that 3% wakes up and approaches you, or do you try to cultivate the 97% that aren't quite awake yet, right? Or they're not in that buying mode. Yeah, no. And, and again, I think that goes back to your, what's the you know modern strategy or newer, right? Is it's an evolving and you know, us being in this, this world for a long time, you know, I, in the early days, I think early 2000s, I was working with the software company and I, I ran a, an outbound tele leads center of 140 people just making outbound dials all day, every day, trying to get people to, to buy our product, right? And mm-hmm. that kind of evolved into, well, we'll drive some of it inbound to today, man, a cold call. And I still get into you know, a LinkedIn fights with salespeople at times that, you know, the cold call is just not effective. And if you think about that from 3% piece, it's going to be really hard to connect with that, that buying audience. So what I tried to do is lay that out and said, Hey, here's who we're going after. Here's how we need to connect. What's the strategy to get there. And another one that, you know, recent years, you know, content and value based content. And you guys had an episode again with Beth talking about this is no longer optional, right? If, if customers are looking for you and they can't find, or you can't tell your story online, you're gonna have a really hard time connecting with them. So this is really right. about setting the strategy. How do we reach new prospects? You know, channels to do it right through strategic partnerships. I mean, there's a host of different ways you can yeah. go to create some momentum. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, just in this thread, on uh, this line of our conversation, Brett, um, uh, last year, I introduced this concept called an intelligent sales pipeline, which you know uses technologies that previously weren't really available for small and mid-sized businesses to to target effectively based on an ideal customer profile, right? Using lists from you know um, Zoom Info, for example, that really weren't available to small businesses either to actually get contact level information on prospects right so there are things you can do that today that you couldn't do before I mean, either the technology wasn't available or it was too expensive or it wasn't it wasn't sort of bite-sized enough for small and mid-sized businesses to access and so i think that becomes really important just having being able to know who exactly is it that you want to do business with and then finding them in whatever markets they're in Right. Yeah, um, no, right. It plays off the, uh, the alignment piece of where are the where are these folks hanging out, right? Is LinkedIn B2B? A lot of the time LinkedIn's still an underutilized channel if, if done right. Yeah, it is. It can be. That's that's for sure. So then we get to E and ACES, enable. Let's talk about that a little bit. And this is the one that's near and dear to my heart coming from a, a process background. So this is really enablement, right? So often I'm sure you've seen this that hey, we've spent really good money on the connect aspect with driving leads, either you know, whatever channel that you're using and they've got some part-time person that's following up on incoming leads or folks that have actually raised their hand and say, Hey, I want to learn more. I want to do business with you and maybe we'll process those leads. So I break this into two distinct pieces, which is buyer enablement. And at the, the highest level, it's right. How do we get our prospects through the process as efficiently as quickly as possible? right? Don't make them search for information. Don't make them call for pricing. If you can avoid it, I understand there's nuances to that, Mm -hmm. but the sooner you can get them through the process with the least amount of friction, the better chance you have to convert them. And I think in general, most folks get this, but that's where it stops, right? Especially in the early days. All right. So we actually sold somebody, maybe they have an onboarding process or not, but then even after that, 
you know, I'd like to think of it part two is enabling the customer, right? Mm-hmm. So you have these folks, these are your greatest resources and assets that you have yeah. and you yeah. can't forget about them. Yeah. Um, and so how do you help unlock the, the value of what you're offering is? And what I think the other piece that I like to, to remind these founders all the time is this is your single best lead gen channel, right? So right. these folks really like what you're doing, your product, your service, there's communication, they're yeah. going to tell, tell 10 people and all of a sudden it's going to drive your funnel where if they're not having a good experience or you only reach out to them either when your contracts are expiring or there's a problem, then you're really not getting the benefit of, of what the hard work you put in to actually get these, these folks as customers. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just startups. This is a, across the board, the B2B orgs, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I spent a number of years with um, Deluxe Corporation, um, particularly Deluxe Business Systems, which was the small business and uh, arm of Deluxe. And, you know, they were one of the largest direct marketers in the country at the time. And so when, you, when you're a direct marketer, you, you get ingrained things like customer acquisition class, customer lifetime value. Um, repeat, cross-sell, upsell, right? What you just said really is um, that a lot of organizations, and I'm, I'm surprised sometimes even the larger ones, don't think about their existing customers as assets and don't really do much to develop those relationships or build on those relationships. Like, so if the large guys don't do it, you know, small guys should be able to do it with smaller number of customers right. to start with, right? But but it's it's a best practice for everybody, honestly. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think the earlier you build it into the the DNA of your organization, and you know, maybe just to tie off on this point, because this is really where you know the automation and the process starts to get important, right? If you're mm-hmm. founder led, you're doing everything. You may have your routines of how you do it, but in order to get more people flowing through your organization, you've got to start to automate, you know, some, and I always start with the non-value added pieces of it, right? Always have your people around for the most critical conversations and the most value add conversations. But too often I find founders wait too far down this path that, Hey, we got some good flow of prospects coming in. And then it's just a one-off everywhere. And it just creates, you know, confusion on dissatisfied customers. And usually you don't get a, a part two with it. So this is right. where you're starting to build kind of the foundation of your processes and look to automate certain pieces. You have to go mm-hmm. all the way, but again, it's, it's kind of building blocks. Yeah, it is. Well, that brings us to the, the S in ACEs, Brett. So some will say, hey, why'd you have to add an S? Wasn't ACE good enough? But I know you feel pretty strongly that there are best practices around the, uh, the support, the S in ACEs as well. Yeah, and I did debate a lot on this, you know, whether to include it, but I just think the service aspect in supporting those customers is so important that you want to call it out and build and think about it differently because no matter if they're in the buying process or, you know, post-sale, if they have a problem, you know, sometimes you'll have a couple people assigned to service, they'll answer the question, you know, I, I just got an email the other day, well, It'll be, you know, 72 hours, we'll get back to I'm like 72 hours. I'm like, what world are we living in these days? And so it really, you know, one of the biggest differentiators, and I know I hear you guys talk about all the time is customer experience. So to me, the service just is a layer that you should be looking at it outside of your processes to make sure the organization is committed to that earlier, the better. And, you know, with the theme, I think we're, we're kind of uncovering as we talk about this is legacy companies and enterprise going to have a really hard time 
pivoting and building this at the core of, of all their offerings. So I believe there's a ton of startups in mid markets that it can kind of pivot and think digital first, but not just digital, but experience and take mm -hmm. all these things differently, have a real opportunity to disrupt what I would say some of the, the traditional players. So yeah, uh, I know that's a little off topic, but I am super excited about the, the prospect for, for some of these small companies to, to take on these larger companies. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing you and I are both very passionate about is helping small and mid-sized businesses grow, right? I mean, we, we look at the leadership, the commitment they make, and um, it's much to be admired, their work ethic. And um, so I think talking about the ACES methodology, alignment, connection, enablement, support, and services is pretty critical. Do you have any final thoughts as we kind of put a wrap on today's show? No, I mean, I think it is, you know, the one thing I would go back to founders and businesses is the, you know, content is no longer optional, right? Like I said, yeah. it's, it used to be a nice to have, now it's a need to have. And, you know, just one last example I give, there's a, uh, a company out of Ireland, they're in the, the climate change, they're, they're focusing on, you know, efficiencies and driving it. And my conversation with him is, I'm like, well, this is his third company. So I'm like, so what's, you know, how are you approaching this one differently than even 10 years ago? He's like, well, I used to be able to hire the superstar sales reps, right? That can articulate, you know, the value that we have. We're really good in the boardroom, sell those deals. He's like, now I've got 30 content people. That's, I mean, that's their largest expense is people creating content, value mm -hmm. add, just not content for the sake of content. Yeah. And that was a real kind of eye opener for me that, you know, a lot of these high growth companies now are leading with that and you know, just one final tie off on that piece. So he's like, where I used to have long sales process, I've now divided that into micro processes. So I've got lower cost folks, still really people passionate about it, but I don't need right. that other piece because it's more not self-serve in a way, but self-guided from the, the prospect standpoint. So I thought mm -hmm. that was interesting. I'm seeing yeah. that as a, a major trend of these yeah. earlier stage high growth companies. Uh, and you know, I think when, I would just translate that into a comment about the changing buying process overall, right? If we think we can control it, we can sort of drive people from one step to another. We're just, that's, that's upside down from the way the world works today, yeah, right? 100%. You know, the buying process has got very complicated. It may take seven to 13 touches to close a B2B uh, uh, new sale. And um, you just have to be there with good content so I'm going to reinforce that point as well, Brett, but you have to be there with good content to help them take that next step. Thinking about it as, as self-guided and that you can, you can sort of uh, enable that movement wherever they choose to go, however they choose to pursue either educating themselves on your product or learning about your business or looking at product reviews that you can enable that and help them kind of get through that efficiently. Yeah. And in the way I've kind of got people to think a little bit differently, because I'm hundred percent with you, right? Talk about a buy and process instead of your sales process, because the prospect doesn't care about your sales prospect. No. And, and the way I kind of look at where the, the sales reps role used to be, to be more of a hard sell, right? Here's, here's the deal. It's more of a concierge now, right? So, Hey, I'm here to help you get through this process. What do you need? I can answer the questions. If I don't have it, I've got somebody that help you. And it's interesting few companies that have adopted this have actually seen increase in sales by just changing the title from, you know, sales rep to, you know, enablement or service or those types mm -hmm. of things. So I think you're 100% yeah. right on the mind shift and 
the buyers have the power, so you better align around them and not what you want to do internally. Easier said yeah. than done, but I think easier. It, yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, Brett, this has been a great, rich discussion, I think, for anybody who's thinking about doing a startup or maybe in that early stage. I think some of the guidance you've offered is just very, very practical, very positive, and um, I hope I hope it connects and lands with people in a way that sort of helps them beat some of the odds that we've talked about. So thanks for joining me today. Give listeners your contact information if they want to pursue a, a conversation with you after today's show. How best to um, reach out to you, Brett? Yeah, I can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. That seems to be the, the easiest place for folks to, to find me. You can see my background and uh, it's just Brett Trainer. I know you have it in the show notes. And if you want to learn a little bit more, I've also got a website with the same personal, right? BrettTrainer.com. So that's triple T in there. And it's got links to, you know, the podcast, if folks are interested, it's B2B Founder Podcast, you know, check it out. It's the same type. Mark was a guest and kind enough to guest uh, for us a while back. And, you know, it's, it's just, again, my, my passion at this point is just helping more than that 1% get to the 10 million. How do we do right. get to two or three? And I think it's more of an execution issue than an idea issue. So yeah, we got a ton of free content and I'm happy to have a call and, you know, anybody that, that wants to reach out and have a, mm -hmm. have a discussion. So I appreciate yeah. it, Mark. Well, you're very welcome. And thanks. Thanks for joining me. I would really encourage any of our listeners who are, um, you know, in that role of trying to beat the odds on their startup to take a look at some of the content that Brett's produced, because I, I think it's really quite valuable, quite practical. And a, a lot of it, you can just, you can absorb at your own pace. So it's all good. Thanks again, Brett. And uh, I think we'll put a wrap on um, today's session of the Practical CMO. Hope you tune in for a, another uh, podcast next month and maybe go back and listen to some of the ones that we've already created. So thanks, everybody.